Hi, my name is Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. This week, we're speaking to features editor and tech reporter of Bloomberg Businessweek, Max Chafkin. He's just penned his debut book, the brilliantly researched biography, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. If you've followed the tech world in any shape or form over the last two decades, then it would be almost impossible to have avoided the name Peter Thiel. One of the most successful venture capitalists of our time and a hugely influential power broker. In the last two decades, he's navigated his way to becoming the godfather of tech bros. His politics, his ideas permeate everything that Silicon Valley has become today. Teal is known for playing puppet master with some of the biggest names in tech, from Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg. A shadowy entrepreneur who's aligned himself with the more conservative side of politics. He's crafted his worldview out of a hyper-libertarian mindset. From seasteading to the apocalypse, to space travel and the quest for immortality, he epitomises everything that Silicon Valley has now become maligned for. To some, Teal is the OG troll, perhaps even malevolent, someone to be very suspicious of. To many, he's a prophet, someone not afraid to speak his mind no matter what the cost. He envisioned the left eating itself decades ago, the coming balkanization of the Democratic Party. Invariably, he's become one of the most influential and consequential figures in Silicon Valley today. Some know him as the first investor in Facebook, portrayed in the iconic 2010 film, The Social Network. Others as the interventionist who helped bring down Gawker in 2016. If it all sounds a bit cloak and daggers to you, then that's because it is. Chafkin's fantastic biography is an appropriate metaphor for the questionable motives behind Silicon Valley and an indication of where it could be heading. In this wide-ranging discussion, Chafkin and I examine the power elite of Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel's shape-shifting ideological worldview. We also learn about the tight-knit and at times bizarre relationship between Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. We learn about Thiel's prophetic voice on cancel culture and his future plans as a board member for Facebook, now called Meta. There's no doubt about it, Thiel is either one of the most hated individuals in the world of business and tech or one of the most misunderstood. You decide. Enjoy. Please note, there are some minor technical snags throughout this interview, which we could not avoid. So I do apologize in advance. Max, welcome to the 52 Insights podcast. Thanks for having me. So why uh, did you decide to write a book about uh, the overlord, Peter Thiel? Well, so uh, I've been um, a tech reporter and editor, basically been covering Silicon Valley for the last um, 16 years or so. And, you know, during that time, you know, Teal's been basically, you know, impossible to avoid, right? I mean, he's just been sort of in one way or another connected to, you know, some of the most successful companies, uh, many of the most successful companies, many of the most successful people. Um, and, and even, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, in six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever, where like every single, um, interesting person or idea or company in tech, um, that I would encounter, uh, you know, from, from the time I started covering the, the industry to, to today, you know, has some kind of connection to Teal. Either they've raised money from one of his investment firms or they were a co-founder or they're, you know, they went to Stanford with him or something. And that would, uh, you know, that alone, I think, 
would make him kind of interesting enough for a book. I mean, he's had a, an amazingly um, unusual kind of career path where he sort of went from being this, um, you know, washout corporate lawyer to becoming, you know, one of the most powerful, uh, if not the most powerful venture capitalists in the most powerful industry, uh, co-founder of PayPal, first investor of Facebook, so on. Um, but uh, but that's only like half the story because Teal also has this um, very active political career and 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 especially active over the last couple of years as you know kind of one of the key patrons to um, you know right wing nationalism populist nationalism or whatever you want to call it in the United States and and this um, kind of popped on most people's radars in 2016 when you know this uh, you know this renowned futurist this guy who's known for like you know, investing in the most forward-thinking companies, um, this, you know, gets up uh, in front of a huge audience uh, in in the summer of 2016 and endorses Donald Trump, who's running at the time, of course, as a, as a reactionary, as, as somebody who in, in so many ways, you know, embodies the opposite of Silicon Valley. And I think Teal played a, a, a big role in uh, legitimizing Trump and helping Trump um, you know, get elected, and then and then was was influential uh, in, in the early days of the Trump campaign, and so so anyway, those those two things uh, to me were really interesting. First, because there's an inherent contradiction: how does somebody um, like Peter Thiel come to support somebody like Donald Trump? We could talk about why it's such a contradiction, um, but also um, this guy who had kind of over the course of a couple of decades had established himself as a sort of power center in Silicon Valley was kind of doing the same trick or trying, attempting the same trick in the political realm. And that also, you know, just struck me as, as fascinating and, and worth kind of digging into. Yeah. So you are uh, working out of Bloomberg as an editor in the business um, department. At some point you, you talked about, you know, the, the Kevin Bacon uh, experience at some point have have your had your orbits crossed in in the past in 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 your in your writing career or just covering yeah. business world yeah yeah a handful of times so uh it, back in like 2006 2007 i started looking into a story about this guy elon musk um who at the time was kind of seen as a sort of quirky uh, uh, but maybe unrealistic entrepreneur figure. He had Musk had, had um, sort of invested in in this kind of dopey electric car company called Tesla. He had this crazy plan to um, to launch his own rockets. And I, I sort of attempted. I, I think I was starting to attempt kind of a, a profile of this entrepreneur. I, I worked for Inc. Magazine at the time. Inc. is a magazine about entrepreneurs. Elon just was this kind of classic kind of you know, weird entrepreneur type figure. And I interviewed Teal for that. Uh, Teal and Musk had been sort of co-founders of PayPal. They actually started separate companies that that then merged. Uh, Teal's company was PayPal. Elon's company was X.com. Uh, but, but let's make it clear. Elon Musk did not found contrary to popular belief, did not found a PayPal. Right, yeah, yeah, because Elon Musk founded a, a com, basically a competitor to PayPal. And this is one of the things, yeah, there are all sorts of parts of this PayPal story that are really interesting and maybe underappreciated, but um, it's kind of remarkable that PayPal succeeded, uh, partly because there were tons of other uh, online payments companies at the time. It, it's not like Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, who was the other co-founder, had this kind of like really unique idea. Um, this was like 
an idea that everyone had. They just navigated um, both the boom and then the bust better than anybody else. And part of navigating the boom and the bust was this decision pretty early on to merge with a leading competitor who was Elon Musk. Elon Musk had a very similar company. And basically, they, they get into this 50-50 merger um, where that results in Elon Musk, not Peter Thiel, becoming CEO of, of the combined company. That's, I think, part of the reason um, there's this kind of like misperception. Uh, but very quickly, and this is where you get to kind of the 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 sort of uh, more edgy side of Peter Thiel, uh, he uh, engineers this coup where Musk goes on vacation, uh, goes you know flies around the world uh, to to go on his honeymoon, and uh, when he comes back, uh, Peter Thiel has replaced him uh, as CEO, and and so they have this kind of really uh, sort of fraught but also fraught relationship, but also it's it's one of a lot of collaboration where despite having these kind of difficulties, they 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 managed to continue to work together uh, at PayPal and also continue to invest in each other's companies. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, Teal, I mean, he's he's very, very good, first of all, at at um you know, networking and and kind of like use not just networking in the sense of like meeting people, but networking in the sense of like leveraging the people he knows to achieve the things that he wants to achieve. And yeah. I think with with Elon Musk, Elon Musk is not somebody who suffers fools lightly, as as many of us have uh, since who've you know encountered him on Twitter have since discovered. Um, but I think Musk and Teal just sort of concluded that it was. They were they would be better off as allies than as enemies, and 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 so you have this yeah. kind of allegiance that that has persisted to this day. How would you kind of to help us understand Peter Thiel's worldview and his? If we could just separate who he is for a minute, those very few people that know him very closely, uh, uh, you know, personally, as opposed to the image that he crafts for himself. He really is, I guess, a walking contradiction. He is someone that equally loves the dash of authoritarianism, whether he believes that or not. I don't know. He sides with Christianity. He believes in blowing up the system. He believes the system will eventually disintegrate, hence his shenanigans in New Zealand. He loathes political correctness but loves progressive ideas, loves psychedelics. In fact, uh, the closest I've ever gotten to Peter Thiel is interviewing his protege, um, uh, Christian Angermeyer. I'm not sure how much you know about him. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So longevity and his investment history. Fortune magazine, you know, described him as a gay Christian sympathising conservative who loves to needle the, the politically correct crowd. So, so you've written this book about it. Help us understand Peter Thiel's worldview. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, you, you brought up a lot there and I think all of those things are, are true. And uh, if I could just try to tie some of it together. So um, he's a futurist, right? He's somebody who is very, very interested in, um, in, in new technologies and in the potential for new technologies to, um, yeah, to, to change the world, to accelerate the future, to, to um, you know, improve our lives uh, and, 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 you know, make things possible that weren't possible before. Uh, you hinted at one of his interests, right, like life extension. Um, I think he believes that that act of creating the future is like inherently sort of rebellious. And it's, it's, it requires you to, you know, break from conventional wisdom to do things that are um, maybe like a little better, maybe seen as like a little bit naughty or a little bit outside of the norm. So you have 
this kind of tendency to embrace, you know, rebels, right? People who are who are mold breakers in one way or another, um, and and that that plays out over his career in a couple of different dimensions. One of which is, um, you know, kind of a political dimension. His first. Um, you know, his first entrepreneurial venture, you know, of any substance was this newspaper called the Stanford Review. It's a, it was, it is and and, and was um, conservative student newspaper at Stanford, really kind of edgy. The, um, you know, it's all about kind of like criticizing the the sort of liberal elite as, as Thiel and, you know, and his allies uh, saw it by basically like walking right up to the line on, on, on these issues, on, on issues of say race or, or gender or gender identity, um, sometimes crossing them, um, uh, depending on your point of view. Um, and I think, uh, sometimes people have a hard time like reconciling that it's, it's almost like, like a little bit trollish or something. It's kind of like, um, p- political speech as like, let's see what I can get away with. I think there's actually a connection to that with some of the tech stuff. Um, you know, People wonder, like, why did Peter Thiel see something special in Mark Zuckerberg? You know, what was special about Zuckerberg? Because Zuckerberg, at the time he started Facebook, and and Thiel was really the first person to believe in Zuckerberg, had, you know, more or less gotten sort of shunned, you know, not kicked out of Harvard, but he'd he'd kicked up a huge scandal. He'd, He'd started this kind of like sexist you know, vaguely hackerish app, you know, or like, you know, collecting data from all his peers and, um, you know, generally uh, just like making a lot of enemies at Harvard uh, before he started uh, Facebook. And, and of course, you could totally see why somebody like Peter Thiel would see that and see something there, right? See Zuckerberg, not just as like a troublemaker, but as maybe as a troublemaker in a good way, as somebody who was capable of of overturning other kind of existing orders, not just like offending some people's sensibilities, but maybe overturning an existing order in media or in information. And so I think um, that has been uh, Teal's kind of affinity for these types is both his kind of like, it's his source of his power and a lot of his success. And of course, it's also the reason he he, um, attracts so much controversy. Do you like Peter Teal? I mean, I feel like, you know, to, to write about somebody, I think, in this way, you have to you have to try to like them, right? Because you have to. Um, you, uh, what I want to be able to do is empathize, right? To try to be able to put myself in in the shoes of, of a subject, right? To, to help understand them, I think that's like that's useful in um, you know in our in our in our personal lives, but it's it's, it's of course also useful um, journalistically. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time um, while I was writing this book trying to find parts of him that I could identify with and, and that I would respect. And I think there's tons of, of, of aspects of his career that are, you know, worthy of respect and, and worthy of admiration. Um, but I also, you know, part of what I want to do in this book is, is be, you know, unflinching and, and, and not be afraid. You know, sometimes if we like somebody, it can blind us to the ways in which in their shortcomings. And I do think there are shortcomings of um, Teal's ideology. There have been shortcomings of his, in his approach to business. Um, and, and, um, and so, you know, I want to be able to see those things too. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess what you're hearing probably is, a, a, an attempt at journalistic detachment. Yeah. And that's hard because he's such a fraught figure. I guess what I find, what do you make of Peter Thiel's intelligence? Because there's a lot to be made about his sophistication and I've seen many, many interviews with him. And I think he has a lot to say about a lot of things, but I also think there's an element, maybe this hasn't this hasn't come up a lot that he he tends to kind of shadow or hide 
behind certain things. We're not sure what he's actually hiding behind. So I'm wondering, like, is his capacity for intellectual acumen or, you know, for really understanding the way the world is, is it as good as everyone says it is? Or is it a bit of a charade? Well, okay. So everyone who encounters Peter Thiel, including people who really dislike him, um, we invariably describe him as, as brilliant. And I think, um, now there, obviously there are different dimensions of brilliance and you're hitting on something specific. Um, I think he's like an incredible, he's, a, he's like an incredible strategist. Um, he's, he's really, really good. I mean, we talked about the PayPal thing, uh, briefly, um, you know, not too many people have gotten away with like stabbing Elon Musk in the back and like live to tell, um, he is an incredible strategist, um, both in, in the realms of business and investing. Um, and I'd also argue public relations and branding and, and things like that. Um, and, and of course he's, he's a very, very effective, um, like, He's not a good speaker. His delivery is pretty bad, I think. Um, but he's like a very effective, you know, communicator. You know, his 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 writing um, and and his speeches, even even when they're not delivered in the most like polished way, um, are at times like very powerful. And the fact that he has, you know, he has this amazing following. Like he's he's not like the most charismatic guy. Um, he's not the richest person. There's you know. He doesn't have a lot of obvious things. But, he, but I think he is charismatic. Right, I there is a charisma. Yeah. 100%. He's got kind of this like anti-charisma, right? Where he, yeah, and yeah. you mentioned it earlier, but like he tells it like it is. And I think, and and I so I think you have to like say that does that stuff doesn't happen by accident. Like he's not a fraud because like those things are all like, that's, the, that's a accurate reflection of his strengths. I think he's sometimes, people sometimes read into his sort of intellectual output in a way that to me feels like borderline fan fiction. Like I, I, people, like some of his, his closest followers see him as this like amazing philosopher. And to me, like whatever, my personal opinion. And, and I think, um, you know, I'm a journalist. And so maybe I'm not, maybe this is just a, um, my own shortcomings, but like that, I don't think that, I don't think he's as compelling in that but, way. Okay. But, but what is his philosophy? You know, if I'm, if, if I met him at a dinner party and, and managed to, you know, trade a margarita with him or a caprino or whatever it is, and he was about to tell me about the way he sees it, well, what is his philosophy? Well, so it depends on kind of like who, what your point of view is. Right. But like, I think if I'm going to give you the kind of like, like teal fan uh, assessment, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea around uh, basically standing out from the herd, right? Uh, Teal is a, a huge fan of Rene Girard um, and and has and and believes that Girard's concept of like mimetic desire uh, applies to everything, right? It's it's a great way, and 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 the idea, just to summarize quickly, is that people that one of the like key forces, if not the key force, in like. Uh, the the development of history and and how we relate to one another is like our desire to imitate and in particular to desire the things that other people desire right and Teal sees that as like a central insight that helps him you know in business like that's a that's another way of saying like contrarianism and it's part of the reason like that I wanted that to be the title uh, of of the book um, and uh, so he sees it as a um, as a business philosophy but of course he also sees it. I think crucially as a life philosophy, as something that has, you know, a, a much greater 
application that 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 when you understand that that the force of imitation is like you know is everywhere then it it you know it unlocks all sorts of things i mean i think another way to understand peter thiel is as a very successful entrepreneur and investor you know and power broker and and i i guess that's to some extent right that that is the frame that that i apply Max, I wonder what you make of the, the whole Gorka-Hulk-Hogan incident back in 2016. Strangely, I mean, I somewhat side with Peter Thiel on this as a journalist building a magazine. I don't think the media should get a free pass just because it's the media. I, I feel like Gorka's salacious and invariably like hostile attitude put them squarely on a warpath. How do you think that episode is represented for Peter Thiel? On Gawker. Um I think, okay, so a, a couple of things. Like one is in the book, like I'm not, I'm not trying to pass judgment on, on Teal here and, and, and to say like it was Gawker, was the Gawker thing good or bad, but just to like try to explore kind of like why it happened and how it fit into um, to his larger uh, sort of business and personal and, and so on projects. Um, and I do think there, there are a lot of weird, interesting uh, things going on there because of course, uh, Gawker, um, the thing that like first put Gawker at odds with Peter Thiel was that they, they did a blog post, um, yeah. Uh, in two that late 2007, uh, saying Peter Thiel is totally gay people. And, uh, at the time Thiel who's gay, uh, was not out, um, publicly. He was, he wasn't keeping it a secret. He, you know, his family and friends and colleagues knew or whatever, but he hadn't been outed in the way that we kind of talk about it today. And, and that happened. And I think um, he's somebody who has had a very conservative upbringing. And he's also just, I think, like caricaturologically um, private. Like he, he's not somebody like, he's not somebody who even with his friends is like, offering a lot of his like kind of personal life or things like that. So I think he viewed it just on a kind of personal level as horrible, right. As, as an attack. Um, and, um, a violation. Yeah. It is a violation, right. Of his privacy. And, um, I think that's super understandable. Right. And I think we today, I think even people who, um, have problems with the Gawker litigation, the way he pursued it can kind of agree that that, blog post was unacceptable. And like, I, I'm an editor, right? Like I would not have, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to say I would not have, but like today I would definitely would not do that. Right. Um, now, uh, there were other things going on though, right? It wasn't just that Gawker outed him. What Gawker did in addition to outing him was write a lot of like critical stories about his hedge fund um, and about his peers in the, in the technology industry. And, you know, they were, you know, basically while Peter Thiel's, uh, while uh, shortly after Peter Thiel had been outed by Gawker, his hedge fund kind of went into a tailspin and Gawker pursued, um, you know, relentlessly, like negative coverage, right? And it was and, a hit job, really. Well, I, I mean, which part? I, which part was a hit job? The uh, the 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 outing or the or it, covering well, the, the incessant attacks. I mean, I don't think that's clear. His hedge fund collapsed. I, you know, I, I you know, it's it, it maybe they were covering the collapse of his hedge fund fairly. I mean, if you at the time, like, if you um, ask somebody, like, early two thousand eight, like. You ask like a random reader of the Wall Street Journal, who's Peter Thiel, random attendee of Davos, like who's Peter Thiel? They would say, um, 
uh, he's the most successful, one of the most successful hedge fund managers in the world. He's maybe the next George Soros. And like, I don't know, like I, you'd have to go back and, and look at the coverage. And of course, Gawker had a tendency to be snarky and mean and rude and stuff like that. But I, I think that covering the um, the collapse of a major hedge fund is absolutely like a legitimate story. It's a kind of story that, you know, we, I pursue and, you know, my day job all the time. And like, and I don't mm. think journalists should pull punches when we write about, um, when we write about the the failings of large, you know, financial institutions. Uh, it's a totally different situation than talking about somebody's personal life. Yeah. I, and I also think um, the, the, that while the Hulk Hogan case was very much open and shut, it, you know, um, Gawker published essentially revenge porn involving, um, you know, Hulk Hogan. Uh, you know that that had no connection to 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 any of the stuff that happened with Peter Thiel and the people who suffered in that lawsuit were not exclusively people who had been involved in the um you know involved in the publication of this original blog post in 2007 right it's a lot it's like this is like 10 years later and and it's you know it's it's it affects like hundreds of journalists and and um yeah. uh, many of whom had nothing to do with it and so or, you know, actually, you know, the vast majority of whom had nothing to do with it. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I think that while, you know, you can you can sort of like, you know, sort of understand why he felt the way he he felt and and, and even sympathize with it. I, I think that the the specter of a billionaire, you know, destroying a media outlet um, and destroying it secretly, you know, presents real challenges uh, for, for freedom of the press and for uh, free speech. And Yeah, I struggle with that. I, I really, I watched the documentary. I mean, that's as much as I know about the episode. Um, but, but, you know, it, it, you know, and I don't want this, this interview to be about the yeah. Gawker episode, but just, just in my neighbourhood, I just, as a journalist and building a magazine, I just feel like the media get way too much of a free pass and they use the, the excuse free press as a way of getting that free pass. And I just, I just, it just, it, it frustrates me. I think there needs to be a larger discussion about that. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there are, I mean, you know, wealthy people have outlets to pursue grievance against, you know, media outlets that yeah. they disagree with. Um, and I think the discussion, the, the question is like, do we want to be in a situation where we have you know, wealthy billionaires, rather than challenging a media outlet on the facts, um, they find a different case and and fund it, you know, to, you know, go to the hilt, you know, fund it with enormous amounts of money and and effectively crush a media outlet. I mean, I, to me, like, that's, even if you're like, even if you want to hold the media accountable, like, that's not a very good way to do it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a good way to get journalists to be more careful when they write about Peter Thiel. Um, and I can tell you, it's done that, right? It's, it's, if that was the goal, it has, uh, and I do think that was part of the goal, um, he absolutely achieved it. Now, he hasn't done it again. Um, you know, I wrote this whole book. He never threatened me, um, either directly or indirectly, you know, uh, never attempted to suppress publication. But I'm telling you, it's something that everybody is thinking about all the time. And they're not just thinking about it with respect to Peter Thiel. They think about it with any wealthy person, because any wealthy person could could use this and will. And I'm not sure, like, I think, I don't think that the balance of power between the wealthy and the rest of us, like, I'm not sure we really need to push to give more power to the wealthy. Like, I think they already kind of have a lot of power. Um, but, but I don't know. I, 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 I totally respect that there's, 
you know, room for disagreement on this. And that's one of the reasons yeah. like I didn't, again, in the book, I'm not trying to pass judgment, just sort of more trying to tell what happened. Yeah, no, I get that. And I guess that's why they create TV shows like Succession. It's kind totally. of pseudo intellectual attacks on the, on the privileged and, and the powerful. Max, you, your book also comments on Silicon Valley and, and power. I mean, they go hand in hand with Peter Thiel. And what, what's your personal take? You've been covering tech for, for you know, a lot of your career. What's your take on Silicon Valley today? It's, it looks enormously different than to what it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. It's a place yeah. that you wouldn't even recognize today. Some would argue that it's become more unproductive because of the amount of moral grenades that is thrown into society than, than actually being helpful. I mean, it, it, you know, it was built on the premise that it would make our lives more convenient when you get the, the sinister feeling that, it, that it's, it's wreaking more havoc. Well, and this is one of the things, one of the reasons that Teal appealed to me as somebody to write about, because he is somebody who kind of created Silicon Valley as it exists. Um, um, but he's also turned critic. He's a critic of, of Silicon Valley today. And, um, you know, for, for, for years, right. He famously, and I'm sure you're aware of this, probably many people, um, you know, listening are aware, but, you know, he published this famous or founders fund, his venture capital fund, you know, published this famous essay, what happened to the future. He is kind of one of his like sort of key riffs is this idea, you know, we were plot, promised flying cars and said we got 140 characters he's been he's been criticizing silicon valley relentlessly you know for failing to be sufficiently ambitious uh and more recently he's criticized google for um you know not for for basically like kind of playing footsie with the chinese government or or for you know so and 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 he's and so he's somebody who is actually kind of keying in to some of the themes that you're bringing up right now right the 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 question of um, power and influence, and like, are these companies doing anything good uh, in the world? And I think, um, I think it's it's super interesting. First of all, that he's asking those questions. I also think that like those are questions that like everybody is asking. And you know, look, I feel. I mean, I'm really interested in technology for its own sake. And I'm, I'm, you know, as somebody who's followed the industry for a long time, like I, I'm still like very optimistic about you know, the potential uh, of, of technology to like, you know, make our lives better and, and things like that. Um, but I do think what's happened that's, that we're all just sort of coming to terms with and coming and everybody's kind of coming up with their own answers for, uh, for how to deal with this is this industry that was basically an insurgent force for, um, you know, for a really long time, for decades. Uh, and, you know, there's been, it's not like there have been really successful tech companies before. It's not like it's a clean, clean cut story, but, but Silicon Valley was on the outside, outside of the kind of core establishment, core power structure um, in the United States and the world. And that's not true anymore. You know, nine of the 10 biggest companies in the world. So I, the last I checked, I don't know, it's probably could be like eight of 11 or 10 of, 11, I don't know, but you know, if you look at the biggest companies in the world by market share, they're pretty much all tech companies. Um, most of them based in the U.S., a handful um, based in China. And those Chinese companies look a lot like—I mean, in terms of like what they do—look a lot like the the um, the U.S. tech companies. And and so, like, while I think that Facebook, when it was growing, the ethos, which I think is an ethos that very much comes from Peter Thiel, this kind of like move fast and break things. We're going to overturn the existing order. Um, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to connect the world, damn the consequences. Like, I, I feel like when they were starting that company, that ethos made a lot more sense than it does today. It, it makes a lot more sense to, to say, move fast and break things when you're a tiny company and you're fighting for survival and so on, than when you are like the most powerful, you know, media entity, like in the history of humanity and you're worth like $2 trillion and you have three point or whatever they're worth today. And, and you have, you know, 3.6 or something, you know, billion users, half the world's population logging into yeah. your service, um, you know, once a month. So I just think that's something that we don't really, that the industry doesn't really have an answer for. And maybe regulators, maybe the culture doesn't have an answer for. I think some of the reasons for that have to do with um, the fact that these a lot of these services are still really good. And so like, it's hard to be like, yeah, I really want to rain in Amazon while I buy, you know, while I'm just like buying diapers for my kids and, you know, doing all this stuff, you know, on Amazon or. But this um, is what, this people, is what I'm saying. The, 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 yeah. the, the, the convenience dilemma. Yeah. It, 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 it is, it is, it is broken society in half because you've got these regulators regularly inviting, you know, people to testify in the Senate and asking them, you know, questions about how these things work. But at the same time, I know that these people are relying so much on the systems that they've created and we're better off for it. I, I, you know, I think, I'd like to think that, um, but I do think we need to have, we need to be a little more rigorous in asking about, you know, asking to the extent to which these technologies are are good for us and good for the world and not and not just assuming that. And I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons um, I think it's worth thinking about kind of Teal's ideology. You know, we haven't talked about this that much, but this idea that tech companies basically are are a social good, that disruption is a social good, that we should just like get out of the way and let the disruptors disrupt. Um, that's something that, I mean, that's an idea that I think Peter Thiel has been instrumental in popularizing and not just popularizing on the right or something, but like making everyone basically accept it. Uh, and I think that's an idea that probably needs to be examined, you know, more closely today. What do you think he makes of, um, Mark Zuckerberg being a board member of Facebook? I mean, yeah, I think just to kind of emphasize how ridiculously successful as an investor and, as a futurist, as you call him, seeing companies with a future. I mean, he has obviously had a lot of failures, but, you know, Facebook is certainly isn't one of them. Um, and he's seen it grow and evolve uh, over the decades to become, as he said, one of the most successful companies in the world. What do you think he makes of the meta mess? Well, the Teal-Zuckerberg relationship, it's, it's like one of the most interesting relationships in business or, you know, in terms of like power relationships. Like, I think it's it's really wild because... Um, you know, of course, Zuckerberg is one of the most powerful people in the world, um, uh, and he's powerful in part because of Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is the person who um, uh, basically set up this stock structure that allows Zuckerberg to have absolute control. Um, but it's not just that. He was a key advisor to Zuckerberg. He's, you know, a mentor, you know, and certainly in matters of business, and I think in some cases in terms of Zuckerberg's sort of political and ideological worldview. Um, and he also has really helped kind of um, shape perceptions, not just of Facebook, but like of founders and of the, and like getting people to sort of see, you know, Zuckerberg as this like, you know, um, you know, just like amazing genius. And, um, you know, the, when the social network, I talk about this in the book, like the social network came out, 
Um, and the producers of the social network, like, you know, the writer and the director, right. Saw it as like a criticism of, uh, of Facebook. And like, I think when you read the, the reviews of the social network, all the, the reviewers who are, who like come from my world mostly are like, wow, like this is such an indictment of, uh, of the tech industry uh, of technology. But of course, nobody saw it that way. Right. They, they saw it as like, yeah, I want to be like Mark Zuckerberg, I, you know, and the social network wasn't a cautionary tale. It was an aspirational tale. And Teal actually said as much, you know, he talked about, uh, I, I think the the creation, I, I talk about this in the book, but, but he created the Teal Fellowship partly because the social network was coming out. And I think he saw there was this kind of there was this like wave of criticism against founders washing, you know, washing over um, the media landscape. And I think he wanted to, you know, push back on that. And, 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 and so I don't think it's a coincidence that he launched, launched the Teal Fellowship, which is this program that pays, you know, young people a hundred thousand uh, dollars basically to drop out of college. Remember Zuckerberg's a Harvard dropout. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think those two things are connected. And I think Teal and Zuckerberg himself, right. Really, um, helped guide people in this, in that, in the interpretation that I'm talking about. So in so many ways, I think Zuckerberg, you know, owes his position of power to Teal. And I think that Teal, even though he has some qualms with Facebook, um, is loyal to Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg is a founder. Teal is like, you know, famously loyal to founders. And I think, think there's like a, a a real like a profound like personal connection there um but teal has also you know worked kind of both behind the scenes and now increasingly kind of in the foreground to criticize facebook yeah. uh you know both in terms of like sort of supporting and funding um you know activists who have who have done things to to kind of push zuckerberg in various ways and now increasingly um uh, politicians who are criticizing Facebook. And I think what that's about is like Teal both likes Facebook, but he has, he has problems with it. And he also thinks that, you know, Facebook is like an important, like political actor. And I think he's trying to push Facebook, you know, to the right to, to not, you know, it, it, again, I'm, and I'm not endorsing this position, but, but this is, I think how it's seen, you know, a lot of conservatives see Facebook as, as suppressing conservative voices. Yeah. Um, I think Teal has been working in various ways to make sure that conservative voices, people he agrees with have a voice on that platform. Yeah. But, but I think that we're hinting at the, the real soul of Peter Thiel's story, which is that what I think a lot of people, mostly progressives, but larger to an extent mainstream, find so troublesome about Peter Thiel is that he's a world builder and he has the power, the influence and the money to build the world that he sees fit for everyone else to live in. And this is hinting at the mega moguls, the kind of gilded age individuals. We're talking about Elon Musk and, and several others in that kind of group. The people are just absolutely fed up with. So, you know, if he wants to build a seasteading uh, city, then he can do it. If he wants to build colonies um, on Mars, he can do it. If he wants to engineer the share structure, Mark Zuckerberg, he can do it. You know, one of the, the biggest problems that people have with Peter Thiel is, 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 is his relationship with Palantir. And for those maybe that don't know what Palantir is, you, you, you'll, you can explain that. It's, you know, tightly related to, to the to defence establishment. Yeah. So, so what do you make of, of, of this type of idea that he's able to kind of construct and, and build the kind of world while, while we just kind of live in it? Yeah, I think you put, I mean, I think you, you're putting your finger on something there. 
Um, uh, he's, and I think that's something that both his fans and his critics would sort of agree on, right? I mean, part of what makes kind of teal's tealism or whatever um, so attractive to people is this idea that you can build this your own world that you you know you like you can create a company and and live with this kind of like uh, this kind of complete freedom that you're talking about. It's um, uh, you know I think it's incredibly. Um, compelling, especially to like a certain kind of person that ambitious, you know, when you think about like, you know, ambitious, you know, introverted engineering, brilliant type, you know, the kind of tech guys, right? Like it has a, it has like a, a really, really um, seductive quality. And of course it's also, um, you know, it, it's kind of like antisocial. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's or it's certainly anti-institutional and and people in those institutions um you know don't like it uh and uh, you, you know you brought palantir uh, so i'll just give a quick uh, quick synopsis i mean it's a basically a database company um they make software that helps um you know large organizations uh big companies but also uh you know police uh military and so on uh you know do data mining and that's uh and and that doesn't sound super controversial, um, but their biggest client is, you know, the U.S. military. And of course, as we know from, you know, Edward Snowden and, and you know, basically a decade's worth of, of reporting on data mining, right? Like you can very quickly, people's privacy can be violated. So there's, so there's a lot of concern that, you know, you have this like um, pretty large company with billions of dollars in military contracts effectively controlled by, you know, kind of like an oligarch, um, you know, it, it, there's definitely like a potential for, um, for abuse and, and things like that. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of people who see Palantir in this kind of like really like shadowy, it's a lot of on the left, especially as this like, you know, it's like the key to understanding every, you know, you get these like kind of crazy conspiracy theories about Palantir and, um, those I don't think are right. I, I think, you know, and I try in the book to kind of demystify it. Like this is not, there, there's nothing kind of like magical about what this company does. In fact, it's really, it is very much in keeping, in fact, with the history of Silicon Valley, which is, you know, many of these tech companies in the early, in the early days of the Valley were defense contractors. And Teal is just doing basically like what Intel and HP did in their early, in their early years, um, but with software. And of course, that software, I'm not saying like it, there's no room to criticize the software. There's no room for a, a, a privacy conversation. I think those things definitely are, are worth having, but um, it's not as, it just isn't as mystical as people make it. The software has failings. Um, and, and it's also, you know, the story of Palantir is both a story of amazing software, but also kind of like amazing marketing and amazing like political um, you know, finagling, as is as is always, frankly, the case when we're talking about large government contractors. Yeah. Um, lastly, I just kind of want to end up on on an area that I think some might find quite controversial. Well, everything about Peter Thiel is controversial, but I, I want to kind of get your take and what you think Peter's take is on the current culture wars that are playing out. Some would say that, you know, he's kind of ahead of the curve in terms of the culture wars. Well, when I say the culture wars, I'm kind of talking specifically about the, uh, you know, the progressive left and the way that they're kind of strategizing and organizing uh, political correctness, and which leads to a furious kind of cancel culture um, that's starting to play out. So 
you know, it, he is always um, considered critical of what we now call the woke and that kind of liberal political um, attitude. And I think what's so interesting about him and what's what what he said, he, he, he almost has this told you so attitude, which is that I'm finding that the people that I used to feel like were steering on the pendulum far to the left are now being not only manoeuvred to the centre but almost slightly to the right into um, Teal's circles or they would be, their, their opinions would be um, welcomed in that corner. So I think there's an enormously strange kind of manoeuvring going on in that kind of politically um, natured circles. I'm wondering what you think of that and what Peter would make of the culture wars today. Well, okay, so this is something that he's, for Teal, right, this is nothing new. You know, you're talking about him being ahead. He's been, like, so far ahead, you know, we have to go back, like, you know, um, uh, almost four decades uh, to, 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 to the beginning because, you know, Teal's, this newspaper that, Steel, that Teal founded in the, in the 80s, um, and, and a book, he wrote a book in the, in the, you know, mid nineties, that was kind of largely an extension of, of the Stanford review. Um, you know, it was co-written with David Sachs, who was another Stanford review editor. I mean, it's all about this, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's railing against, um, political correctness, um, and in particular around, um, diversity and like, because diversity myth is all about basically how Stanford has like, as Teal saw it, um, you know, bent, gone too far. It's important to say, first of all, that, so I, I think he was way ahead on that. And I also think when you look at kind of like where the kind of culture war has gone, you know, he should be seen as a, as a key kind of like early player as somebody who helped set the tone. Totally um, agree. Yeah. Um, now it's worth saying though, that that, even that, even back then it wasn't totally new. I mean, this is something that the new right, you know, Teal is not alone in this. Um, uh, Stanford Review was kind of modeled after the Dartmouth Review, which is the newspaper that Dinesh D'Souza, who's like another bomb throwing, probably more, uh, you know, probably even more of a bomb thrower, right, than Peter Thiel, because he doesn't have a tech, uh, he doesn't have billions of dollars in investments to protect. He can be a little edgier. Um, but Dinesh D'Souza, you know, super controversial kind of conservative commentator, started a newspaper at, at Dartmouth. You had the Cornell Review, which was Ann Coulter's paper. Ann Coulter and Teal are friends. So, like, this has been a, a, a stream that conservatives have been swimming in for a very long time. And, and it's been, um, you know, fairly or unfairly, I think, a conservative talking point, you know, going back to the 1980s. Now, I think a lot of people have wondered like, okay, like what did Peter Thiel see in Donald Trump? Like, what, like, uh, as I said at the top of this, like, you know, Trump kind of ran as a reactionary, right? It's like, it was basically running like, hey, you know, it was really awesome in the 1950s. Like, let's go back to that time. And, um, uh, and you know, I don't, he, he was like proud about not using technology and it's all these things you would sort of think Thiel would be against. Um, and of course, I think Thiel was against some aspects of Trumpism, but I think the thing that he that he really where he really connected to Trump is that Trump's campaign was very much um, a sort of of a piece with that kind of like trolling critique of political correctness. Trump was saying the things that that you know you couldn't say, and like that, I think was uh, a big part of why people voted for him. They saw him as this kind of like somebody who could like hang with the elite, but what, but would also, you know, tell it like it is, or, you know, would, would, would not be afraid of, you know, of being called a racist or a sexist or anti-immigrant. And I think that's something that a lot of Trump voters liked. And I think it's frankly um, something that, that like Peter Thiel liked. And I think, you know, 
he has been very effective over a long period of time of kind of use of sort of bringing that these ideas, right? The critique of political correctness, um, the idea that there is some, you know, left establishment that is like suppressing conservative ideas. He's brought that very much in the mainstream where, you know, it's arguably like 30% of the electorate, 40% of the electorate, it's like the most important issue. And and that's kind of amazing. Um, And um, now the one thing I'll say, just a teeny bit of pushback is like, Teal is kind of like living proof that and teal circle is sort of like living proof that um you know that like cancel culture is a little overplayed i mean you know we're seeing uh, teal has not been canceled right he's gotten much much richer he he he's somebody who who uh, he and his, his supporters talk about the fact that he's being canceled well, well I, i'd challenge that I'd, I'd actually challenge i'd say he is canceled he canceled before he even knew he's canceled and when i say that i mean there aren't a lot of liberal establishments that would welcome him to speak I guess I just don't know, like, what, I, I guess if you're defining it as, like, who's allowed to speak at Oberlin College or whatever, like, fine. But, like, uh, you know, he's been very successful. He's arguably, uh, you know, more successful, uh, more powerful. He's certainly richer um, than he's ever been. So, you know, if that's what cancellation looks like, uh, you know, fine. But, like, I, I just think, and maybe that's a testament to kind of what the argument that you're making, that, you know, these ideas have gone further mainstream and, like, that's why, you know, uh, you know, Teal can, can succeed in the world. But, you know, we saw um, uh, these, uh, you know, Barry Weiss and, and this kind of crew of, of um, kind of contrarians. You know, I, I don't know if there's money there from Teal, but they're certainly swimming in the same kind of stream that Teal's swimming in. And, you know, the main backer of Barry Weiss's university is, um, you know, Joe Lonsdale is a co-founder of Palantir. Um, you know, Barry Weiss is doing pretty well. So like, I, you know, I, as a, as a member, you know, like she, she, she may be canceled, but like, she's a much more successful, um, you know, media personality post-cancellation than quote-unquote cancellation than she was before. So I don't know what that says, but but to me, that challenges the idea that, you know, that, that this culture war is quite the crisis that, you know, Peter Thiel and his allies, you know, make it out to be. Max Chafkin, thanks so much for your time. That was fantastic. Good luck with your book, The Contrarian. I guess we'll have to wait and see um, what chess move Peter Thiel makes next. Cool. Thanks, Ari. This was really fun. You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and thanks to Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get access to my latest interviews with extraordinary people.